All right, uh, open your Bibles to the book of Judges today, the book of Judges, and uh, we will teach this today and next Wednesday, Judges and Ruth. We'll finish next week with Ruth, and uh, then we will be taking the break for uh, about eight weeks, June and July, and then pick back up the very first Wednesday in August. And continue on until Thanksgiving. So that's uh, our general process, and we'll continue that this year. What do you all know about the book of Judges? Somebody tell me what you know about the book of Judges. Anybody? Got some wonderful stories in it. There are some wonderful stories in it, for sure. What else? Anything about the book of Judges? great description. They were on again, off again believers in the book of Judges. Most but, of the times they were just doing their own thing. Doing their own thing. I don't think those Ten Commandments made it. Uh, they, they, well. they struggled, yes. Yeah, the theme uh, that, that goes over and over in Judges is that everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Yeah. Anybody else? Anybody Lots of battles and blood. Some pretty um, amazing is not the word I want, but pretty incredible kinds of bloodshed that went on in the book of Judges. Anybody else? Yeah, Rebecca? Oh, boy. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. That's good. God was very patient with them. Um, and certainly demonstrated mercy and grace. And really, we'll get to this next week, but that's what the book of Ruth kind of brings us to realize. In the midst of all of that mess, there is this story uh, that leads to um, the birth of Christ, ultimately. So, anybody else? Tell me what you know about Judges. You came for me to tell you what I know about Judges, I think. All right, well, hopefully, if I don't know more than you do, it's going to be a short lesson, I can tell you that. All right, the, um, the theme of Joshua was conquering and settling the land of Canaan. And that theme now continues in the book of Judges, but the focus is more on um, how much land they did not settle as opposed to what they did settle. And, um, and at the end of the day, the, the postscript is that most of the tribes of Israel failed to take over the territory they were supposed to take over. All right? Uh, great promise, but at the end of the day, we've got to lay hold of the promise, and they failed to do that. Janet. The book of failure, that's, that's a good point. Yes, in her Bible that says this book could appropriately be called the book of failure. And there are lots of them in this book, for sure. So let's, um, actually I had you turn to um, Judges, but go back to Joshua um, 1 and verse 1. I want to show you 
something, Joshua 1 and verse 1. It begins with this phrase, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying. Now if you look at Judges 1 and verse 1, it says, now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass. And so this is the period of time we're talking about. Joshua, the book of Joshua was the period of time right after Moses died. And the book of Judges is the period of time right after Joshua has died. Unlike the previous book, Joshua, uh, the book of Judges is not named after any person. Uh, There's not even a single person that's prominent. There are several individuals that kind of rise to the surface, but there is no one prominent individual in the book of Judges at all. Uh, the, The author of Judges is kind of a you kind of have to guess. There's not a lot of internal evidence, nothing really in the book of Judges that screams that any one person wrote it. Um, There is nothing even, there's one thing, I'll talk about it externally, that points to one particular author. Um, But many conservative scholars just say it was written uh, anonymously. We don't know who the author is and it was intended to be that way. Um, now, there is some evidence that Samuel wrote the book of Judges. The, um, you may want, I'll write this down for you in case you want to put it in your notes. What, what was called the Babylonian, um, the Babylonian Talmud, which was, um, came right around the 500 B.C., Period, um, and, and it, all the the Babylonian Talmud. Tell me, um, we'll, we'll check your check your uh, biblical history knowledge here. When when was when did Jerusalem get destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and the people carried into exile? Anybody know that date right off? I've only said it three hundred times. Bob Mangus, what date is that? Bob, you were wrong and she told you you were wrong. Okay. Anybody know? 586 BC. Okay. So they carry, they carry many of the Jews to Babylon. And of course, among those Jews would be rabbis. And the Talmud was um, kind of the commentary on the Old Testament. That, that's really... I guess the best way to describe what the Talmud is. You, you often hear people talk about Talmud. They don't put Babylonian in front of it, but that's what they're talking about. It. It's the rabbis that were in Babylon that got carried away into exile. Um, the Babylonian Talmud, these Jewish rabbis that, that wrote this, say that Samuel was the author of Judges. That's really the only external pointer that we have, but there's no other corroborating evidence, and so we're really not absolutely sure. We do know that everything in the book of Judges precedes the death of Samuel. So he could have written it. It, it would have been probable because he hadn't died yet. Um, when it comes to dating the book, um, there are... Uh, go to Judges 17. Let me just show you a few verses. This is just preliminary stuff that... that 
I know that you're super interested in. So that's why I'm telling you. Um, Judges 17.6. Look at 17.6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Look at 18.1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. You don't have to look at the other two. 19.1 and 21.25. They all four, all four places say, in those days, there, were, there was no king in Israel. Um, that then means that it was written uh, before Saul became king. There was no king in Israel. So, so not only was it written about a period, about a period that there was no king, it was probably also written, it was probably written prior to uh, the first king of Israel, which would have been Saul. This suggests that it was written, or excuse me, it was, it, it was written about a period. Let me say that again. This is pretty important. It was written about a period where there was no king, judges, but it was written after a period when Saul had become king. That's why whoever wrote it said at that time, there was no king in Israel. In other words, they're, they're writing in a time where there was a king, but they're writing about a time when there was no king. Did I make that make sense? So, so again, Samuel was still alive. He's the one that anointed both Saul and David. So it, it, it's very possible that Samuel wrote it about the period of time when there was no king in Israel. I'm sorry, kind of confused the way I said that. So again, that means if, if we're going to say Samuel wrote it, then it probably was written sometime between... 1050 and 1000 BC. David was reigning in 1000 BC. So probably sometime in that period of time. Also just an interesting uh, little piece here, maybe. It it covers, um, the book of Judges covers a period of 325 years, I believe is what I wrote down. Yeah, 325 from 1375 B.C. to 1050 B.C. So um, this is the period of time, 325 years total. So the whole book of Judges tells a story of over three centuries, and this would be the period of time that, that it, it covers. Um, a couple of other things. Um, Eli serves 40 years let, let's, let me walk you through this. So at the end of Judges, uh, so there's three, I just dumped my water in there. How about that? Okay. Um, so 325 years. At the end of Judges, and, and when we get into 1 Samuel, you may want to write this down because we won't get there until August. In, um, Eli was the priest. He served as priest and judge. And he did so for about 40 years. And then um, Samuel did as well. Served as both priest and judge also for about 40 years. And then the monarchy began with Saul and then David and Solomon. And then it split after that. So this, again, I just want to give you a little time frame when this period of time is. This is all before uh, the monarchy or before the dynasty. So they were, um, so all told, these 325 years, the whole period of Judges, the book of Judges is about 325 years. But when you add 
1 Samuel with Eli and Samuel before the king, each serving about 40 years each. The, the time that Israel was ruled by judges was about 405 years total. Make sense to everybody? All right. So 325 years is the book of Judges. But then when you turn the page to 1 Samuel, they're still in the period of Judges. Eli is a judge for 40 years, then Samuel, and then the king. So about 80 more years on top of the 325, about 405 years that, that um, they are a nation of tribes governing themselves. Can you imagine? They've spent uh, 400 years as slaves, 40 years wandering in the wilderness, and then they spend 400 years governing themselves. What a mess, right? And that's exactly, that's exactly what they had. Look at chapter 2 of Judges, verse 10. Chapter 2, book of Judges, verse 10. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord, and they served Baal and the Ashtaroth. Ashtoreths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. So let me set up this story in Judges. They um, come out of Egypt, Moses dies. Um, they come out of Egypt and Moses wanders with them for 40 years, then Moses dies. Joshua takes over, last two weeks. He leads them into the land of promise and they begin to conquer territory. They don't remember, what, what was their biggest failure when they started taking territory? What, what, what was their big failure? They did, not, they did not inquire of the Lord. We talked about that a couple of times. Somebody else? They worshipped idols. They did absolutely. Why did they jump? Why were the idols even around? What did they? They had another group of people with them, and they did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. So they, they, um, uh, they co-inhabited the land that they were supposed to take over. So, but but they're okay as long as Joshua's around. They have a leader. And Joshua still remembered what they had been through. And so he kind of keeps them in check. But when Joshua dies, that's where we get to the book of Judges. When Joshua dies, and he's not mentored anybody, and all of his generation dies, then you've got people who have never encountered God, who don't have a leader, who are co-inhabiting with people who are serving idols, and there's nobody pointing them to the law, and so they begin to mingle with, with these other nations and their gods. And what I just read to you, they start serving the Ashtoreths. They start serving the Baals. And they end up absolutely 
steeped in idolatry. And so God turns them over to their enemies. The book of Judges, and Jesse said this, is, is this cycle, this cycle of God's people getting caught up with idolatry, getting in trouble, God allowing them to be judged by another nation, put in bondage. They cry out to God and God sends them someone to deliver them. And they, their land is at peace for a little while and then it happens all over again. All right. That's the cycle of the book of Judges. Michael. Right. After that, they were sent out into their various areas on their own. That is correct. And I see that that's probably part of it, since they weren't unified and working together, they were, they were all separated. They were separated, and even more the reason why they needed godly leadership in each of those places. And there was, I mean, to be very, to be very frank, Moses only had to, to mentor one. Joshua should have mentored about 12 and uh, did not. And so you have all of those pockets spread out where there's no godly leadership. That's good. All right. So um, there are 12 judges overall. I put a little chart in your notes. Uh, We'll talk about each of these. Some of these we won't talk about much at all. There are actually what are called the major judges and the minor judges. Um, And uh, the major judges you can see there on your left we will tell each of their stories. Othiniel, Ehud, that's my personal favorite. That's a great, great story. Can't wait if you don't know it. It's a great story. Um, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson. Those are names you're probably familiar with. And then these other six are minor judges. They only get a verse or two a story about them. We'll just read their stories quickly. You probably are not familiar with these. Shagmar, uh, Tola. You may not be familiar with them, but they're great names for grandkids, all right? So Shagmar, Tola, Jair, uh, Isban. Uh, some, by the way, they're great names for somebody else's grandkids. Okay, yeah, you're done. Correct, yes. Four and no more is what the... Okay, Shagmar, Tola, Jair, uh, Isban, Elon, and Abdon. Those are the six minor judges. Three sections in Judges. Well, the first one we're going to give you quickly. The third one I'll give you quickly next week. The second one we'll start in today and we'll still be there when we pick up next week most likely. But the first section really is, uh, I, I've just titled it, In Those Days There Was No Joshua in Israel. All right? Joshua is gone. Um, let's go to chapter 1 and verse 1. And let's just kind of walk through some of these verses Judges chapter 1 and verse 1. And right off the bat, in the absence of Joshua and in the absence of a leader, they they do inquire of the Lord. All right, look at verse 1. After the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord answered them and said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. So here they are, they're looking around and they have no leader. And they, okay, who's the first one to go? And God answers their prayer and tells them that that Judah is to go. But they fail to drive out their enemies. Let's read a few verses. I don't know how far we'll go, but look at verse three. Judah said to Simeon, his brother, 
Come up with me to my allotted territory that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I will likewise go with you. And so Simeon went with them. Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites, the Perizzites, into their hand, and they killed 10,000 men. And they found uh, Adoni Bezek in Bezek and fought against him, defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And then Adoni Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adoni Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, used together scraps under my table, used together scraps under my table as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Um, so, so there are some early, I'm not going to read all of these scriptures, but there, there is some early uh, discussion about how the tribes, uh, you can look at, um, look at verse 29 um, and 30. I'll just, this, actually, I may read several verses. Look at verse 29. Ephraim, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. Look at verse 30. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Look at verse 30. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Um, and look at verse 33. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. And, and so over and over, all the way through the book of Judges, they failed to drive out their enemy. And they did not obey his voice. And this is always, then and now, a recipe for failure. If we do not obey, God said, drive them all out. They did not. And this sets up uh, just a, a spiral uh, of failure. Look at chapter 2 and verse 2. Um, actually, we'll just read verse 1 and 2. The angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Boshim and said, I led you up from Egypt and I brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Um, let me make this statement. You may want to jot it down. It's kind of a cool statement, um, simple. But, but this kind of grabs the whole problem. If they had done what they did not do, they would not have done what they did do. Okay, let me say that again. Um, if Israel had not done if Israel had done what they did not do, they did not drive out the, the enemy. If they had done what they did not do, they would not have done what they did do, and that was compromise with their enemy. It has everything to do with obedience. If they had done what God said to do, they would not have ended up sitting the way they did. And boy, isn't that the truth for us? If we would just do what God said to do, we would not get ourselves all mucked up with the sins that beset us, but Israel failed. Look at verse five, um, and they called on the name of that. They they called the name of that place Boshim. Actually, look at verse four. So when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to the children of Israel, 
The people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Boshim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. There was... um, There were lots of tears, but there was no repentance. It's easy to cry over getting caught and failing and things didn't work out the way I wanted them. But it's a whole other thing to repent and say, I'm the reason that I got caught and I failed and things aren't the way I want them. Um, I've pastored long enough to see a whole lot of people at the altar... um, crying because they got caught or crying because their world unraveled, but not repenting. Now, there's nothing wrong with crying because our world didn't work out, but, but it's got to go deeper than that. There's got to be repentance, and Israel did not repent. Repentance is not a word, by the way, we use much in the church at all anymore. We just kind of uh, soothe things over and try to make people feel better, but until they deal with the core issue and repent of their sin, they're just going to do what Israel did. They're going to circle around and end up in the same place again. And there was no repentance, just lots of tears. Now, true, there was no Joshua. Okay, there was no Joshua. That's the whole point of this first section. Um, But they're not off the hook. Even though there was no Joshua, they still were instructed and they failed to do what God had called them to do. Let's look at some of the spiritual results of their failure here. Chapter 2 and verse 6, when Joshua had dismissed the people, this is Judges 2, the children of Israel each went to his own inheritance to possess the land. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of the inheritance of Timnath Harris in the mountains of Ephraim in the north side of Mount Gaash. And when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose who didn't know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. So the first, the first spiritual result is godliness only lasted one generation. The first spiritual result of there being no Joshua is godliness only lasted one generation. Um, Look at verse 11. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, and they, look, they provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers. So the second spiritual result is failure that brought the anger of God. Godliness lasted one generation. That's the first spiritual result. Failure that led to the anger of God is the second result. Look at verse 16 now for the third result. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and they bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked and obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity 
by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. But it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their own stubborn way. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not heeded my voice, I will also no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died so that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep my ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. So there's result number three, and it's kind of three different things, but result number three is anger of God, the pity of God, and the deliverance of God, this cycle. Anger, then they cried out, pity, and then he delivered. Anger, pity, or mercy, and deliverance. By the way, in case you haven't figured out, whoever authored this is telling the whole story, the cycle story, before he gives the specific stories. He's just summarizing what we're going to read in these stories. But this is how they acted all the way through the book of Judges. They, they get delivered. They fall back into sin. God's angry. Then they cry out. He has pity. He sends a deliverer. And then they just do the same thing again. Can you imagine that? For 325 years, 400 years, really, they did that. And then chapter 3, and and this is the fourth spiritual result. um, These are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan, This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it, namely five lords of the Philistines and the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who dwelled in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal, Hermon to the entrance of Hamath. And they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives, and they gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. So um, the fourth spiritual result is the nations remained with them and troubled Israel all of their days. So there's four spiritual results in chapter 2, of the spiritual results of having no Joshua, having no godly leadership. Any questions? Now we're going to get into really the meat. Yeah, John? It's a good question. Um, I, I think it's one of those places, his question was, why didn't God raise up someone else? Um, I, I think that it, it's a question of personal responsibility. I think, I think though God raised up Joshua, had Moses not trained Joshua, kept him close to him, I think the same result would have happened before. So I really think we, we, it's hard to do this because we don't want to be Monday morning quarterbacks, but I think it was a failure of Joshua. I think that there were people that Joshua could have raised up, but he didn't take the initiative. Now, I, I certainly show my bias there because I am not a Calvinist. Calvinists would say this was all part God's plan. It was going to happen no matter what. 
I would say, because I'm not a Calvinist, that God allows free will and that this is a partnership. Ministry is a partnership with God. And his first act of sovereignty is to give Joshua a free will. And he failed to raise up a leader. That's, that's how I would interpret that. Yeah. Now, again, if, if I'm going to come from a Calvinistic standpoint, and you can read this text, God left them there to test them. You can read that text almost as this was God's plan all along. Um, but I believe that God's plan all along, there's a difference between him knowing what he was going to do and him ordaining it to be done that way. So that would be my take on it. Anybody else want to? Yeah, Shirley. It seems to me that uh, when Moses was ruling and given all the laws and stuff, they said to write all this stuff on your doorpost and mm-hmm. carry it on your head. And so they were supposed to be taught. Mm-hmm. And somewhere along the line, they were not taught. Right, right. Yeah. No, I think that's very, very possible. I, I think what, what, you know, it's probably a, I don't know, it, it may be a great analogy, but all of us have experienced a great revival or a great service. We walk away from the altar and we, man, are gun-ho that we're going to do this, do this, do this, and everything's going to change, and we fizzle out. And I think, I think that... Um, what you see at Sinai, what you see every time they renewed the covenant, we will do whatever you say to us to do. I think when Moses stood there in Deuteronomy and gave him his last will and testament, we're going to do this. But I think human nature um, always reverts back. That's why, and they didn't have the Holy Spirit living in them to help them. We really are without excuse. We still have human nature But we now have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead living in us if we'll cultivate that relationship. But I just think they they reverted back. I think they were serious when they said, we'll do it. We'll put it on our head and tell our children. But I think human nature reverts back. And and we always have to be aware of that today as well. Anybody else? Any other thoughts? Bob? Bob? Absolutely. It has been, um, we, there are so many comparisons to America today in the book of Judges. And, and it really is back, you're really picking up on Shirley's point. It's a failure for us to hand it off to the next generation. Um, probably, probably that's the, the message of Joshua and Judges is how important it is because, um, you know, and I, you all are, you all are, have grandkids now. Um, but but I wish that I could. I don't want to beat up the young people. I don't want to beat up the ones with preschool and tell them you got to be here every Sunday. But but I just know that what becomes less than priority to them is going to become no priority to the next generation. That's the problem. It's not, you know, they think, you know, I'm still kind of hanging in there a little bit and raising my kids sort of in church. 
But those kids are watching that, and, and, and every generation is a little less than the one ahead of them. And, and so I, it's not, you know, when I, I, I have to pull myself back, and I don't want to beat them up when they're there. But, man, I want them to understand how dangerous it is to not make Jesus and the presence of God priority in their lives. And that's, that's where I don't have the answer. We, we talk about it all the time. We've got to find ways without driving them away and pushing them off. And, you know, we've got to find ways for them to understand this is, is priority. And now, you know, now I'm, I'm way off base. And I'll, I'll get back to the lesson. But, but, I mean, we're dealing with things now that we didn't deal with when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I played baseball. And, um, but we played baseball during baseball season, you know. And when baseball season was over, baseball was over. And you went to the next sport. And Sunday was still sacred, and Wednesday night was still sacred. And that, I mean, they're playing baseball games now at 8 o'clock in the morning on Sunday in tournaments, and the parents are being told, and probably so, if your kid has any chance playing in high school, you know, they, they've got to play. They, if they don't play, they're not going to compete. And unless just a whole bunch of Christian parents who have really good players, and a whole bunch of them, not just one, but a whole bunch of them say, no, it's probably not going to change. And so uh, I'm, I'm glad you're raising little kids and I'm not, okay? That's all I can say. Because it's tough. It's, it is tough. We need to pray for them. We need to creatively find ways to help our younger parents. But we can't back away and, and, and at least I'm not going to back away and have that on my hands that I didn't tell them how important it is. And... and Figuring it out is tough. But anyway, that, that's the issue. They did not pass it on. Bob and Shirley, they did not pass it on to the next generation. And we've got to do that. We've just got to. All right. Um, let's go on. We'll, now, the second section, this is where we will spend the bulk of, of the time, the rest of the time today, and probably two-thirds of it next week or something like that. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, depends on how much I talk and how much you talk. We'll, we'll see. Um, but let's do the minor judges first. They don't take long. We'll, we'll zip through them, and you'll think that this is, lesson's not going to take very long. But there, there are six of them. The first one is um, maybe my favorite name, Shagmar. How would you like to have a kid named Shagmar? All right. Verse 31, chapter 3. After him um, was Shagmar, or Shamgar. I'm saying that wrong. I, it's written wrong. It is Shamgar. Typo, and I read it per notes instead of Bible. It is Shamgar. All right? That's even a better name. I think that's better than Shagmar. I think Shamgar is a better name. All right. So, um, after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. All right? Um, I'm... The after him, by the way, is after Ahud. We'll go back and pick up Ahud because he was one of the major judges. I'm doing the minor judges first. So here's what we know about Shamgar. He followed Ahud and he preceded Deborah. They are the two major judges. So Shamgar followed Ahud, preceded the judge Deborah. Um, He used an ox goad. The, The Hebrew for that is um, I 
I dumped a whole cup of water in there. So it's a, I have a wet pen. Um, the, the Hebrew for this is Malmad, um, or Malmad, um, Habakar, I think is the way to say it. Uh, yes, Habakar. That is ox goad. Um, and it, it is an instrument of discipline um, for the, the oxen. Uh, it comes from the verb uh, lamad, and lamad means to train. So it was an instrument used to train oxen. So he used what was to train oxen, and he killed 600 Philistine men with an instrument used to train oxen. All right? Impressive. I don't know what you do with it. I don't know how to preach it. I'm just telling you it's in the Bible. All right? Uh, What is interesting, I'm sure somebody more creative than me could come up with a great sermon for that, but that's not my thing. So, um, but what I would want you to notice is like Samson, Samson's battle will be with the Philistines. But, but what is interesting is um, in Judges 13.5, it says of Samson that he began to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. But it appears that, um, that Shamgar's um, defeat of the Philistines, at least at that moment, was final. Now, they obviously worked their way back up, but he didn't begin to deliver them. He delivered them, and Israel, it says, um, it, it says he delivered Israel in verse 31. So it seems that he even had more, even though he's a minor judge, more success than Samson would have later. Now, flip over to chapter 10 for minor judge number 2, Tola. Judges 10 and verse 1. After Abimelech, which is a great story that we'll get to later, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, and who would name the son of Dodo? Who would name their kid Dodo? (laughs) I love the Bible. A man, (laughs) what? Yes, I have too. A man of Issachar, and he dwelt in Shemir in the mountains of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years, and he died and was buried in Shemir. That's all we know about Tola. The most, the, the most interesting thing about Tola is he's the grandson of Dodo. Okay, we, that's, that's the most. <laughs> and he died. There you go. All right. Don't you love Bible study? Isn't this fun? These are facts that you would never pick up anywhere else. Um, and then there's Jair, third, third minor judges, Jair, Jair probably. After him, this is verse 3, Jair, a, Gilead, a Gileadite, he judged Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. They also had 30 towns, which are called Havoth Jair to this day which are in the land of Gilead, and he died and was buried in Canaan. So again, not a lot to say about him. That's why we're doing all of these. Then there is in chapter 12, turn to chapter 12, verse 8. Um, then there is Izban, or Ibzan. Once again, I am, no, I, it's right, Ibzan. Um, after him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. 
He also had 30 sons, and he gave away 30 daughters in marriage, and he brought in 30 daughters from elsewhere for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. And then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. And then there's Elon, chapter 12, verse 11. After him, Elon, the Zebulonite, judged Israel. He judged Israel 10 years. And Elon, the Zebulonite, Zebulonites died and was buried at Ijalon in the country of Zebulun. And then the last of the minor judges, just keep reading, is Abdon. Um, then Abdon, the son of Hillel, or excuse me, verse 13, after him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, um, the uh, Pirathonite, judged Israel, had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 young donkeys and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the uh, Pirathonite, died and was buried in Parathon, in the land of Ephraim, in the mountains of the Amalekites. All right? You all feel renewed and refreshed now that you know about them. True story, when we take in, in college or seminary, dumbest thing, most unfair, you take it, especially in undergrad, in, in Bible college, you take Old Testament survey, and there's all these great stories and all these great theological truths, and they try to nail you on knowing details like that. You have to match judges to towns, and I, I, I never got that. It was just some power-hungry professor, I think, that wanted to flunk everybody. But um, anyway, that's, those are the, the minor judges. Now let's go to the major judges. This is where the stories that we are most familiar with um, are found. And the first one, go to chapter 3. Uh, the first one we're going to talk about is Athenial. And uh, you'll find it in chapter 3 and verse number 7. Chapter 3 and verse 7. And uh, we read this. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God. And they served the Baals and the Asherahs. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of Cushan. Uh, Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. Uh, and the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. Then the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Here's that cycle. Okay, they did what was evil. They ended up in bondage, and then they cried out. Uh, so the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel, who delivered them, uh, Othinio, the son of Kenaz, Caleb, remember Caleb's younger brother. So this is a nephew of Caleb, all right? Othiniel is a nephew of, did I do that right? Nephew of Caleb. He is the son of Kenaz, which was Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rithamathain. So the land had rest for 40 years. And then Othiniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So he is the nephew. Othiniel is the nephew of, nephew of Caleb. He fought the king of Aram, depending on your translation, or the king of Mesopotamia. Aram uh, is also called Syria. So that, if that gives you a little bit of help as far as uh, the place. But this is who he fought and he fought and brought Israel through his victory 40 years of 
of peace. What, what, what's kind of interesting is that there was something in Othiniel that, that evidently was maybe in the uh, DNA of the family because he survives. He, he rises to the top of a faithless generation. In the midst of all of this evil, God raises up Othiniel and he, he becomes the cream of the crop of all of these people that are getting involved in, in compromising with idols. And he becomes the deliverer of Israel, just like his uncle, Caleb, who survived in the midst of a faithless generation and said, we can get this land. I don't care what the other ten spies say. We can get this land. And, of course, they didn't get the land, and they wandered for 40 years. But 40 years later, 45 years later to be exact, Caleb is still ready to go, isn't he? And he says, give me this mountain, and I'm going to take it. And so in Othinio is that same spirit that survives the faithlessness of the world around him and rises to the cream of the crop, and God uses him. I, I hope that there are people in our generation that will be Othinials, that young people, that, that though their friends around them are faithless and Godless, that they will rise to, and, and be the cream of the crop and God will use. That's what we have uh, with Othinial. He also, I, maybe this is an unfair analysis, but he seems to be the model judge. Uh, let, me, let me say this. Um, just because God uses someone as a judge, you're going to find out, does not mean that they're Mr. or Mrs. Wonderful. Samson's life was an absolute wreck. An absolute wreck. Um, Gideon, great man of God, that ended up really leading God's people into idolatry himself. And we'll talk about that when we get... To, to Gideon. There were some pretty heinous things carried on by these judges. Othiniel is, in my opinion, kind of the model judge. He, it, it's war. He delivers them. Uh, but there are na- no nails going through a head. You're going to see that happen later. Uh, no killing with a donkey's jawbone like Samson's going to bounce around and do. But he is exemplary. He is, um, he is the model judge uh, he is faithful in a faithless generation, and God uses him to deliver Israel. So he is the first of the major judges, chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Notice he is from the tribe of Judah, and he defeats the people of Mesopotamia. Favorite story, right here before lunch. This is a great story. Ahud, all right? Uh, we, may just, we may drag this story out just to make it fun. All right. Um, how many know, before we read it, how many know the story of Ahud and Eglon? Anybody? Oh, wonderful. All right, this is awesome. All right, chapter 3 and verse 12. All right, um, Judges 3, verse 12. Children of Israel, again, this is the cycle, did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. So when Othiniel delivered them, it was from the Mesopotamians. Now it's the Moabites. Remember, let me just say again, I don't want to bore you with this. Remember, they're in the land. They didn't drive them out. They're still there. And they lose the Israelites when they turn away from God. They lose their majority or their power. 
And now they become in servitude to the nations that were left there. So Eglon rises up when the people did evil. And he's a Moabite king. And he gathered to himself, verse 13, the people of Ammon and Amalek went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. They are back and they become servants themselves. When the children of Israel, notice again, they cry out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ahud, the son of Gera. Notice he is a Benjamite. He comes from the tribe of Benjamin. And he is a left-handed man. Only person in the Bible mentioned as being left-handed. All right? So... Um, that's, that is Ahud. Um, verse 16, Ahud made himself a dagger, double-edged, cubit in length. And he fastened it uh, under his clothes on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute, that would be the taxes that they owed because they are servants, So he brings the tribute, the taxes, to Eglon, king of Moab. And, I mean, who would want this written in parentheses? Eglon was a very fat man, all right? (laughs) But it makes the story so good. And And when he finished presenting, when Ehud finished presenting the taxes, the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. All of his servants, all the people, when he sent them out, And he turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. He said, keep silence. And so everybody who attended left the room. So Ahud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Ahud said, I have a message from God for you. So Eglon rose from his seat. You can kind of picture that big dude, all right? Rises from his seat. And Ahud reached with his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into Eglon's belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade. And isn't this beautiful before lunch? And the fat closed over the blade He did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails, his guts, came out. And then Ahud, are you thrilled you came to Bible study today? Hey, this is the Bible, folks. I didn't make this up. Then Ahud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. And when he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look. And to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber, uh, going to the restroom, likely. They waited until they were were embarrassed. They couldn't wait any longer. I mean, you can't wait outside a locked door of a bathroom forever without going and checking on them. And so they opened the doors, the upper room. They took the key and opened them. And there was their master fallen dead on the floor. But Ahud had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond... the stone images and escaped to uh, Sira. It happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains and he led them and he said to them, follow me for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. 
So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan, leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. At that time, they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor. Not a man escaped. Moab was subdued, subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him then was, was Shamgar that we talked about earlier. So um, here's the story just very quickly. Eg, um, Ehud was the representative of God's people. They had been in bondage for 18 years. They had to pay taxes. He went to deliver the tax or the tribute to the Moabite king, whose name was Eglon, a fat man. And he made a dagger. He kept it on his right thigh. After he gave the tribute, he sent everybody out of the room. And um, he reached with his left hand, got the dagger, and drove it into the stomach of Eglon, and which killed him and delivered God's people from the Moabites. And they then had 80 years of rest. So what's your uh, spiritual insights on that story? Anybody have them? Any, any questions? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a few comments. To I think we can bring this to a close with something that at least is kind of cool. But anybody have any questions about that story? I mean, seriously, do you, is it, that was the second deliverance. First one was from the Mesopotamians, second one from the Moabites. Uh, here, here's what you're going to find interesting, I think is interesting. Um, of the six... Of the six main kings, or the six main judges, major judges, we already talked about Othaniel. Ahud was a left-handed man in a right-hand world. We all know that right hand is the dominant. He's a left-handed man in a right-handed man's world. Deborah is a second judge. She is a woman living in a world of male leaders. And God uses her. Gideon is the youngest of all of his brothers. And when God comes to him and says, you're a mighty man of valor, he says, what are you talking about? I'm from, the, I'm from the weakest tribe and I'm the youngest of my clan. How could I be a mighty man of valor? Jephthah is the son of a harlot. He will be one of the major judges. And Samson... His life was a mess, but God called him from his mother's womb and made him submit to a Nazarite vow, which means he doesn't cut his hair and never drinks wine. The five of the six major judges come from the most unusual places, not a place where you would think that a godly leader would come, not a left-hander in a right-handed world or a woman in a man's world or the, the youngest of the weakest tribe, or the, the son of a prostitute, or that guy Samson who was raised differently than every other child around him because his parents had real strict expectations. But God used all five of those people. Here's the point, the obvious point. Um, it doesn't matter what handicap we have. It doesn't matter what... Um, um, disability, and I'm not talking about maybe a physical disability necessarily, although that would apply. It doesn't matter what lack we think we have or what inability or I didn't come from the right group or I don't have the knowledge or the education or the wealth or the looks or the talent. All of that stuff, I, I think we find here a, a, um, 
a fulfillment of the New Testament revelation that God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise and the weak things of this world to confound the mighty. And, and so, you know, when you tell Old Testament stories, we have to laugh and smile because it's, you know, what do you do with them? They're not, some of those don't yield themselves to great expository preaching. But you've heard me say over and over before, let's not sanitize the Old Testament and try to clean it up and make, some, make it a spiritual story instead of a real story. It was a real story. Bad people that had ugly humanity that they were fighting with, God still used. Um, there is no hero, as you've heard me say a dozen times in the Old Testament. God is the hero. And where our sin abounds, God's grace does much more abound. In our weakness, his strength is made perfect. And that's what we find with all of the judges of Israel. It wasn't their strength. It wasn't that, that they worked hard and, and worked out and got all the education and they were stronger than everybody else. And so God said, okay, because you did all of that, I will choose you. No, he takes the weakest. And when we get to Gideon, he takes the youngest in the weakest tribe and whittles down his army from 32,000 to 300 so he can defeat the Midianites. So God can say, now Gideon, who do you think gets the glory? It's not you, buddy. It's me. So that's the story of the Old Testament. It is the grace of God, the mercy of God, the strength of God that is perfect in our weakness. And you will see that over and over again. All right. All right. We'll uh, see you all on Sunday. God bless you. See you.